Lord, who is like you? No one. There's no one like you. You stand alone in your majesty, in your glory, in your wonder, your power, your authority. And it is you that we worship this morning. I pray now as we open your word and as we study about you, I pray that you would show us again who you are, why we should love you, what we should find important about you, uh, and what you've done for us by your grace. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bible with you, turn with me to the middle of Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. This morning we are going to study one miracle that, apart from the resurrection, is recounted in all four of the Gospels. So it's important. It's, it's, it's a big one. And, and we are going to look at this miracle and this little passage as a standalone passage. But I don't want you to miss the trajectory of Luke's argument here. Let me explain what I mean as you're looking at Luke chapter 9. Back in chapter 8, Jesus miraculously calmed a storm on the Sea of Galilee. And when the the seas uh, ceased to rage, the waves were settled, the disciples asked an all-important question. Here's the question that they asked back in chapter 8. Who then is this that he commands even winds and waters and they obey him? And back in chapter 8, Luke leaves that question unanswered. Then, as the passage goes on, Jesus goes on and he miraculously heals a demoniac. He helps a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. He raised a little girl uh, from death at a very tender age. And those miracles then that Jesus performed were followed by his 12 disciples performing the same miracles as Jesus sends them out two by two. And as those people go out, it leads a high-ranking member of the Roman government to ask the same question in Luke 9, verse 9. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And again, Luke leaves the question unanswered. Jesus is now going to perform another miracle. Again, this is a biggie, the feeding of the 5,000, thousands of people. And then look at the question that Luke records Jesus posing down in verse 18. Just glance ahead. Look what he says in verse 18. Who do the crowds say that I am? The disciples, they throw out some answers there. And then Jesus replies in verse 20, but who do you say that I am? And finally, Luke gives us the answer through the mouth of the Apostle Peter when Peter says, you are the Christ of God. That's the path that Luke is taking. That's the trajectory of this passage. He's trying to lead the disciples, he's recording, and us to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ of God. Okay? That's where we're going. Now, next time when we're together, Lord willing, we'll unpack what that means that Jesus was 
the Christ of God, but I just wanted you to see the, the flow of the argument here. Okay, So this feeding of the 5,000, as it's commonly called, is not just a standalone miracle. It has a purpose. It's pointing to the identity of the person performing the miracle. Who is this guy? Okay, that's the question that Luke is answering. So I want to read our text this morning, Luke chapter 9. I'm going to start reading in verse 10 and read down through verse 17. Here's what Luke records. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions, for we are here in a desolate place. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. They said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For they were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up. Twelve baskets of broken pieces. And we'll, we'll stop there for this morning. Now, one thing that the Jews always knew and believed about God was that he is vast and he's powerful and he's capable of providing for them. One of the most common historical events recounted by the Jewish people of God's provision toward them was his rescue from the hands of the Egyptians. The Jews remembered that event with their festivals. They remembered that event with their sacrifices. They remembered that event with their psalms and with their songs. So monumental was the rescue uh, from the slavery of Egypt, that in many ways it shaped the totality of their understanding of God and his provision for them. The Jews knew that God was a generous God, even one who would not only rescue them from their slavery, but then as the children of Israel traveled out across the wilderness, he provided all the food that they needed for their 40-year journey. And finally, he provided them a home in this land of milk and honey where he blessed them and he prospered them over and over again. Jesus is coming along now in this passage And he wants to nurture the understanding of his disciples so that when they look at him, they see God. That when they look at him and what he provides, they identify him with the God that they know. The disciples struggle with this. 
They struggle for a long time. In fact, they're going to struggle all the way through to his crucifixion. Philip, the night before Jesus died in John 14, it says, he said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus is laying out all this evidence for them throughout his ministry. And in this miracle this morning, it's, it's the climax in many ways of Jesus's miracles. It was designed to produce faith in the minds of his disciples. You'll notice that in this miracle, the miracle of the feeding of the thousands, there's no description of the people's reaction. There's no description of the crowd's reaction. This miracle was primarily for the disciples so that they could answer the question that Jesus would later ask, who do you say that I am? So I want us to get this this morning. The generosity that they knew existed in Yahweh, they now must see displayed in Jesus so that they make the connection. If you have your message notes in front of you, as you're stuffed in your bulletin, you're going to see that I've listed at least three displays of Jesus's generosity in this text, ways that his generosity comes out. The first two, while certainly important, are often overshadowed by the third, but we shouldn't ignore the first two. They are generosities nonetheless. So let's work our way through these. Number one, In this passage, we can see Jesus generously gives respite for our bodies. Look at verse 10 again. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Okay, it says that on their return. Well, on their return from what? What are we talking about here? Well, this is referencing back to this trial mission run that they had done back in verses 1 to 6. Jesus had sent them out with all of his power and his authority to proclaim the kingdom of God, and they were healing people from their diseases. We don't know exactly how long that mission trip took, but it was long enough to at least catch the attention of Herod, we we discovered. But that mission trip that they took was taxing on their bodies. They were constantly preaching proclaiming the kingdom of God in the villages. So no doubt they come back and their vocal cords had been tested. They encountered people who possessed demons, which would have caused them, I believe, to be on high alert. They didn't know when this was going to show up. And if you're always on high alert, you know that your adrenaline is rushing. And when you're finally withdrawn from that setting and that adrenaline crashes, that's an exhausting type of feeling. And all the time that they were traveling, uh, they weren't sleeping in their own beds. I don't know how you travel, but when I travel, I cannot sleep very well. 
in somebody else's bed. I toss and I turn and I roll this way. And sometimes I wake up and I feel like a zombie because I haven't slept very well. And I just look forward to getting back to my own bed and my own family. Ministry is hard work. It's not the physical strain. It's the mental strain. It's the emotional strain. And when these 12 roll back into town, Jesus takes one look at him and at them and he says, guys, you look tired. You need to take a break. And so Jesus took them and he withdrew. In Mark, Mark adds this explanation. In Mark 6, Jesus said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. So they went to a little town, uh, near a little town called Bethsaida. It's just on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. They don't actually go into the town. They stay on the outskirts in an attempt to get some much-needed rest. Now listen to me. Some of you may be here this morning and you need rest. Some of you may be here this morning and you need to be reminded that it's okay to take a break from time to time. You go and you go and you do and you do and all of those things are good. But here's the problem. Some of you in this room might find your identity in the going and the doing. And that's not your identity. Your identity is Jesus Christ. But you have this, you feel this need within you to prove yourself somehow. And you think way back in there that if you're not going and if you're not doing, that you're not a good Christian. But apparently that's not what Jesus thought here. Because again, he looks at these guys and he personally takes them on a sabbatical. You need a break. Jesus generously gives Respite, quietness, rest for our bodies. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Don't go away and do nothing. That's not what it says. It says, come to me, Jesus says. Come to me and find rest. Now, some people will say, Well, Sean, you're just encouraging people to be lazy for Jesus. Well, that's just nonsense. Because in this very same passage, Jesus tells his disciples, you give them something to eat. Okay? So Jesus isn't telling his followers, just sit back and do nothing, just rest all the time. No, he does call them to act. We are called to work for him. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But there are times when we need to rest. And God generously provides that for us. I always think if he rested on the seventh day, then it would seem to reason that he would allow for us to rest as well. So Jesus generously gives respite for our bodies. Secondly, if you look at again at this text, Jesus generously gives rest for our souls. Look at this in verse 11, the very first part of verse 11. When the crowds learned it, that he's, he's back, they followed him and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God. 
The crowds never give up, do they? Everywhere Jesus goes, the crowds hear about this guy. They figure out Jesus is back in town. They know that he can heal. Uh, they, they know that he provides the power to cure. And so they bring their illnesses. They bring their sicknesses, hoping to find some relief. And here's something to notice about Jesus. Notice what it says. Jesus welcomed them. There is never a time when you come to Jesus that you will hear him say, come back later, I'm taking a break from you. There's never a time when you come to Jesus when he will say to you, come back later, I'm resting. No, no, no. No matter what time of day, no matter the situation, Jesus will always welcome those who pursue him. There is no irritation on the part of Jesus whatsoever. And he did it on this day as well. Mark says it like this. It says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. I'm not a shepherd. I've never cared for sheep. Uh, but I'm told that sheep without a shepherd move about aimlessly. They kind of wander about here and there. They get lost They don't pay a lot of attention to where they're at. And this is, in fact, the spiritual state of the people that Jesus is ministering to. How do we know? Because the very first action that Jesus takes here is he teaches them. Look what it says. He spoke to them of the kingdom of God. Remember who he's talking to here. He is talking to sheep who have grown up under the oppressive yoke of rabbis who taught that in order to reach God, you must meticulously follow and have strict obedience to these rules and regulations that they set up. The entirety of your relationship, if you were one of these sheep, depended upon your human effort. And yet the shepherds, these were false shepherds, these Jewish leaders, these shepherds, while they piled on the rules, did nothing to help the people. They just piled it on more and more. Jesus is coming along now, and he's explaining to them, no, listen, your salvation is not basically a result of human effort and strict obedience to law, but it is the product of God's gracious reign in your heart. Can you imagine how startling that sounded to them? They've never heard anything like this. Some of you here today might need to be reminded of this very same thing. Let me ask you a question. I've asked this question here before. Let's see if you remember the answer to this. Are you saved by works? Be careful. The answer is yes, but only by Christ's works. I am saved by works, but only Christ's works. Your works do not contribute to your salvation in any way. It's Christ's works that saved you. Your salvation is solely by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. What are you saying, Sean? Are you saying that good works don't matter in my life? 
Well, don't twist my words. Of course they matter. The believer will have good works in life, but those good works are the evidence of his salvation, not the cause of it. There's a church right now in Denver, Colorado. You can go look this up later this afternoon. They're creating a big stink uh, over this distinction uh, of grace and works, and they've fallen into the ditch of a works-based salvation. And they issued a statement. This just came out this week. And it reads like this, and I quote, We have become convinced that faith alone is not enough. We believe getting to heaven requires we also do the works of faithfully obeying God's commands. In other words, and that sounds kind of right, but then they clarify. In other words, quote, Obedience like faith is another condition or necessary instrument to our justification. In other words, what they're saying is there are two things required for access to heaven, faith and good works, and that flies in the face of Scripture. If you go and read, the entire book of Galatians refutes that. It is by faith alone that you get into heaven. Now, will you have good works? Of course you will, if your faith is real. But your works are proof of your salvation, again, not the cause of it. If you're still not convinced, go read Hebrews 3 and 4, where Jesus is presented as rest for the people of God. Jesus generously gives rest to the weary soul who's just working, 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 trying hard to please God. I want to tell you something. If you believe in Jesus, friend, you do please God. Now, go do some good works. Can you imagine the joy and relief that that brought to these people? Jesus generously gives rest for our soul. And lastly, Jesus generously gives resources for our needs. Look again at the end of verse 11. Jesus didn't just preach to them, but he gave them what they needed physically. It says there that he cured those who had need of healing, and then later, as the sun is descending into the horizon, he noticed that these people need something to eat. And the 12 disciples, they come to Jesus, and honestly, they're trying, trying to kind of convince Jesus to tell him to, to scatter, to scram, right? They, pro- they come to Jesus and they urge him, you know, Jesus, you probably ought to send these people away. They need to find hotels and they need to find hot meals somewhere. And Jesus says something impossible to them. He says, You give them something to eat. John adds a little bit more behind the scenes what Jesus is thinking. In John chapter 6, it says that lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And then catch this. He said this to test them for he himself knew what he would do. Jesus already knew what he was going to do. Warren Wiersbe says it like this, in the crisis hours of life, when your resources are low and your responsibilities are great, it is good to remember that God already has the problem solved. When your resources are low and your responsibility is great, it is good to remember that God already has the problem 
solved. Here he knew what he was going to do. He was just testing the disciples. Now, why was it necessary? Why is he testing the disciples this way? Well, remember, they had just returned from a mission trip. And on that mission trip, they weren't allowed to take anything. You remember? They couldn't take a staff. They couldn't take a bag. They weren't supposed to take food. They weren't supposed to take money. And what did God do for them the entire time they were on the mission trip? He provided all of their needs, didn't he? And now Jesus is throwing out a little test. And he's going to see if they will remember what he did for them back there and if they will call on that same power to depend on them, depend on Jesus now like they did on the mission trip. And they bomb it. Totally forgot. Their only solution is, where's the nearest Publix? Does anybody have a credit card? I don't have that kind of cash to go buy food for all of these people. The trouble with the disciples here is that they've concentrated all of their attention on the vast, hungry crowd and they forgot about the one person who has all of the power and all of the love and all of the compassion. Their forgetfulness is inexcusable. And yet I wonder how often we forget the exact same thing. How many times do we focus on the problem and we forget about the provider? We focus on the problem and we forget to look at the provision of the provider. As Ryan mentioned this morning, this Wednesday evening, our elders are rolling out a vision to you. And if you got your packet and if you looked ahead, you see what is there. And when I look at the vision that we're laying out, it seems overwhelming. I look at it and it feels daunting. How are we going to accomplish that? It's a lot of work. It's a lot of money. That doesn't even seem possible. And yet Jesus says, sit down. And watch me do my work. Look to me. Jesus asked these disciples, what do you have in your hands? And we know from John's account that the disciple Andrew, who was the greatest disciple of all because he shares my name, he was locate, he had located this young boy and he had five barley loaves and two fish. And he, Andrew looks at this and, my goodness, how is that going to make a difference? You see all these people here. In fact, the the text says that there were 5,000 men plus women and children. We're probably looking at somewhere between 10 to 20,000 people. That's a crowd. And Jesus says, have them sit down in groups of 50. Why 50? Well, probably just to make the distribution a little bit easier. And in verse 16, it says, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, he said a blessing over them, and then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. They ate and they were satisfied and what was left over was picked up and they had 12 baskets of broken pieces. How did Jesus do that exactly? We're not told. I don't know if every time he reached in and grabbed more bread that the loaf just kept baking right there on the 
on the, I, I don't know if he, he tore off a piece and as he opened his hand, it mul- I don't know, we're not told how he did it, but what we are told is that Jesus provided so much food that it wasn't just enough to get them from the hillside home. It, he gave them so much food that their stomachs were sticking out. They were full. They were satisfied. And there was enough that they picked up 12 baskets full over. This is the master's extraordinary lavishness in his generosity, in his ability to provide for our needs. There are two fascinating correlations that happen with this miracle. I love this. And remember, Jesus is trying to build faith in his disciples. The first correlation is this. The crowds saw what Jesus did and they correlated it to God's actions in the Old Testament. When Jesus multiplied this bread and those fish, John 6 notes that when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. What are they talking about? What are are they describing? Well, if you remember way back in the Old Testament, God fed his people through Moses as they traveled through the wilderness. Remember, he dropped down manna every night. And every morning they would wake up and there'd be enough manna for that day. And on the weekends, there'd be enough for two days to get them through the Sabbath. And at that time, Moses told the people in Deuteronomy 18... The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And the people on this day saw the bread, saw the provision coming from Jesus' hands, and they concluded this must be the prophet that Moses was talking about. Were they right? Absolutely they were right. They saw the correlation. There's a second correlation here. And I think it's even more fascinating. If you study closely the various accounts of what we call the Lord's Supper, communion, the Lord's table, however you describe that, you will find in the Lord's Supper the exact same verbs that Luke uses here in this miracle. Let me show you. In this miracle, Jesus looks up to heaven and he said a blessing over the loaves. That blessing, that means a prayer of thanksgiving. When Jesus instituted the ordinance of communion, he took the elements, the bread and the wine, and he offered a prayer of thanksgiving over them. In this miracle, Jesus broke the bread. In the first communion, Jesus broke the bread. In this miracle, Jesus gave it to his followers and in the exact same way at communion, Jesus gave the bread and the cup to his followers. That is why the early church saw this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, and they said, you know what? That is prefiguring the Lord's Supper. There is no reader of Luke's gospel in the earliest of days that would have read this miracle and missed that automatic association with what Jesus did here to what he did the night before he died, which tells me this. 
this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, is far more than an act of mercy for hungry people. Although certainly it was that. This is also a sign of the Lord's Messiahship, and it is an illustration of God's gracious provision for man's salvation. For when Jesus broke the bread on that last night, the night before he died, he was preparing to give his disciples the most generous gift of all, his very life. Friend, Jesus was Jesus loved you so much. He was willing to die in your place. He was willing to take the punishment for your sin and he rose again to give you life, to give you forgiveness, to give you peace. His unbelievable generosity previewed here with the feeding of the 5,000 was displayed in its fullness on the cross and in an empty tomb. The crowds were filled on this night. But you know what? The next day they were hungry again. Luke doesn't record it, but John tells us that on this night, Jesus got into a boat, he crossed to the other side, and you know what? The crowds found him there again. They were hungry again. Their bellies were growling again. And so they asked Jesus for bread again. And here's what Jesus told them in John 6. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The disciples are getting it. And in the next passage, they come to and they identify the bread of life. Won't you come to him today? Come to Jesus and find his uncalculating generosity toward you. Let's stand and pray together this morning. God, I'm so thankful for miracles like this, not just because we get to see hungry people fed, although certainly that was part of the compassion and kindness of Jesus. But we see that it was far more than that. Jesus is saying to them, look at me, know who I am. I am God. I will provide all that you need. I will give you rest for your bodies. I will give you rest for your souls. I will provide for all of your needs because I am the bread of life. I am the Christ of God. Father, I pray this morning, if there's anyone here who has never seen that before, who's never called on you, never understood their need for for Jesus, I pray that you would Help that person to see that we all are sinners. 
We all have fallen short. We all have sinned against you. We all deserve your punishment. And Jesus went to the cross for us. And Father, I pray that when we look upon the glories of this crucified and risen Lord, that we would say, it is him who holds life. It's him who has what I need. And we would repent and we would come by faith alone to Christ alone for our salvation. And then we begin to do the things that you call us to do out of a response of love for you and what you've done for us. We love you for this gift. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.